Welcome to Elevate, the masterclass where we dissect the elements of exceptional achievement and lifestyle design with a focus on personal growth and real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Tyler Chesser. Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chesser. I am so thankful to have you here. I'm so thankful to share with you the best of 2020. And my goodness, it's been a it's been a year, right? A lot of us would say it's been a year and, and we'll leave it at that. But I will say that it's been a beautiful year and there's been many, you know, different challenges, which you know what? Some of my mentors tell me that problems are a gift, right? Challenges are a gift for us to grow, for us to become that next version of ourselves. And I know that we've all challenged, you know, ourselves to step up to the plate and face different challenges that have presented themselves to us in our life, in our own personal way, in our own, you know, businesses and such. And obviously this year has thrown so many curveballs at all of us. And it's a matter of how have we responded. And I will tell you that, you know, in the midst of all the challenges that this, this year has brought, there's also been a lot of beautiful discoveries, a lot of beautiful opportunities. And, you know, one of which that I'm most grateful for is the opportunity to bring some amazing, you know, content, amazing guests, amazing discussions and mind expansion through Elevate. So I'm just blessed and grateful to be able to share this with you. Blessed and grateful to be able to share this, this, this podcast with you. This is the best of 2020. And let me tell you, this has been challenging for us to put this together because there's been so much goodness. And before we, you know, dove into creating like a seven hour episode, we were like, all right, how do we how do we distill this down? And it was not easy. So let me just tell you that, you know, the first thing I'll do is I will suggest that you go check out, you know, the amazing stuff that we've created this year. And we've created now, you know, over 117 episodes of Elevate Podcast. And let me tell you, we are just getting started. So I hope you're enjoying this. I hope that you enjoy today's episode because it's really a reflection of some of the greatest moments that we've experienced together on Elevate. I hope that this really inspires you for what's possible in 2021 and beyond. And, uh, you know, with all that said, also, I want to, you know, to encourage you to share this with a friend and to share this with someone who's maybe had a year that, you know, has been filled with more challenges than the average individual and let them know that, you know, anything is possible. You know, perhaps there's a blessing in the challenges that this year has presented. Perhaps there's a reason why, you know, certain things have happened to certain people. You know, the other thing too is, has, has life happened for you or to you? Right. And I, and I believe that if we change our perspective, we can change our life. If we change our story that we tell ourselves within our mind or that we tell other people around us, we can change our life. We can change our business. And so, you know, this episode, this podcast is all about, you know, those stories. It's about how are we creating a greater future? How are we designing a life of fulfillment, a life that we, you know, are proud of, a life that we jump out of bed for in the morning and, you know, also designing the systems of our real estate portfolio so it can create the outcomes that we want practically in our life. And so it's a beautiful combination of expanding our mind, of investing in ourselves, of, you know, expanding our own inner being and creating that highest version of ourselves and stepping into the identity that we've created, that we've intentionally designed. And so I think that this is an extremely powerful way for us to do that. I'm blessed to be able to share this with you. I've learned so much, um, you know, this year, and I look forward to continuing this journey with you next year and beyond. Uh, but be before we do that, I want to celebrate this year with the best of. So I invite you to enjoy this. 
And of course, check out elevatepod.com where we've got all of the different resources for every single show, not just this best of list, but also every other show. And let me tell you, it was, like I said, it was very tough to do the best of because I feel that every episode we bring it, right? So go and check those out. If you haven't listened to shows, you know, in March or in April or January of last year, you know, go back and check those out because this is an opportunity for you to get new ideas and get new inspiration for what's possible for you to set new goals to, you know, to bring in new people into your world to, you know, really to execute and to take massive action on your dreams and to create your dreams and to make your dreams a reality. So we want to be there with you. We want to support you in those endeavors. So go check out elevatepod.com. Of course, anywhere that you listen to podcasts or watch podcasts, we are available there as well. And uh, I'll invite you as well to go check out Elevate Coaching Academy. I've mentioned that a few times, Elevate High Performance Coaching Academy. We're officially launching that uh, in the next month, really in the next week. And uh, there's some exciting, exciting things there. So just go check out elevatecoachingacademy.com if you want to go deeper, if you want to really elevate your game, make more money, have more freedom, all of those amazing things that we're all about on the show. Go check out Elevate Coaching Academy. Uh, But until then, please enjoy the best of 2020. Episode 111, special edition, healthy mind, body, and relationships with my wife, Katie Chesser. But if you train yourself to see the blessings in something, there's always a blessing, always a silver lining to anything that's going on in life. So you just have to seek that out. And I think that's something I'm going to transition us here to the next topic. (laughs) I'm literally losing my job as before our eyes. This is great. Go ahead. So if you are training yourself to see the, the, you know, the blessings in your life and what you are grateful for, that's a practice that I think, Mm -hmm. you know, actually starts at home, starts within. Um, but that's something that we practice every single morning. So we all, we do our gratefuls. Do you want to do your gratefuls now? And we take turns and it started off, I think, like, tell me three things that you're grateful for. And Mm -hmm. of course we always say more than three things that we're grateful for. (laughs) And it can be literally anything, anything that you want. And we do try to challenge ourselves to not say the same things every day. Although there are some things like, our, our relationship, our home, our family that, you know, come up over and over and over again. Um, but now we don't always, or we don't just do what we're grateful for. Now we also list three or more than three things that we're grateful for in the future. So things that we are excited about that we're working towards that we, we want for our future, um, future careers, future family, future life. Yeah. And it's so important because gratitude is the state of receivership. Mm-hmm. And I, I'll restate that. And I believe this so deeply, but it's an interesting when I heard that the first time, I thought that was a very interesting and statement that it was just a statement that I had to wrap my mind around. It's like gratitude is the state of receivership, which seems like two opposing things, right? If you're, if you're thankful for something, you've already received it, right? But maybe that's not the case. And that's, it's interesting because like the more, the reason why I think you're going to the direction that you went with like, all right, when we say, all right, three things that we're thankful for, or three things that we're grateful for in the future. Once you say one, two, three things, you're like, well, I got like nine more to go. So give me a second here because your mind finds these things. And and if you think about it, you're so, we're all so blessed. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a book that I just recently bought. I haven't started reading it yet, but it's called (laughs) enlightenment now. And it talks about how you know, we're all so attuned to all the negative things in our world, right? We're also mm-hmm. aware of all the challenges that our world has. But the premise of the book, from what I understand, is that we live in a greater 
time period now than there's ever been in human history in so many different ways. And, you know, you look at like, it basically talks about like, you know, violence and all these different things that are really like so far, so far lower than they have been in many different ways. So it's about recognizing the good, right? Mm -hmm. It's not saying there is no bad, there is no challenge or anything like that. Um, but it's about recognizing that and putting yourself like, like Tony Robbins talks about, I say, literally say that probably every <laughs> podcast state story strategy, what's your state? So we start with the state of gratitude, the state mm -hmm. of, you know what, I'm, I'm proud and I'm, I'm, I'm thankful, you know, for the good things. And I'm not saying that there are no bad things, but if you start from a negative standpoint, mm -hmm. and this is something that you and I hold each other accountable, and I feel like this, what this really is, is holding each other accountable. Yeah. And then from there you know, the more great things come. And the reason why we do, hey, here's what I'm thankful for in the future is because we're literally creating that in that moment, which right. is so interesting. Well, in your mind doesn't know the difference between what's reality and what's not reality. Mm. So it's training your subconscious to, you know, kind of program, you know, what I want to come. Yeah. And, and well, and, and which what, is kind of what the Tony Robbins thing. Yeah. Is. And it's, and it's Joe Dispenza. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, firing your neurons together and wiring, you know, the yeah. neural circuits. And I mean, way out, way out of my expertise here, but it's really interesting mm -hmm. to study, you know, what these experts talk about and being thankful for an occurrence that has not happened yet. You know, it's amazing what you do, what that, what happens within your brain. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but we talked about quantum physics and mechanics and all these different things, which again, people may say is woo woo, whatever. I'm going to go for it because I've seen it happen. I've literally seen things and you yeah. have too. We have seen things. We've created things in our relationships together that we were thankful for for years, mm -hmm. you know, that now are becoming a reality. Episode 107, Mindful Productivity and Financial Education with Ramsey Solutions, Chris Hogan. No, no, no. I was just thinking of one of the questions you asked me uh, as we were, you had it, you sent down the sheet. And I got to tell you, you, these are some, some of the most thought out I mean, awesome. But one of them you put down, you said, is there anything substantial that you've changed your mind about recently? Yes. And why? Okay. I've never been asked that. Uh, and I, I looked at that and I went, holy cow. Like that's, that's a strong question, right? That you've changed your mind about. And, you know, I think throughout all of this time with the pandemic, you know, you can look at stuff. And I think we've become very divisive right now in our country, right? People got opinions about politics and X, Y, and Z. And you know what I realized? I don't think it was necessarily that I changed my mind. I just became aware. You know, at the end of the day, if you turn off the lights and you grab the hand that's beside you, you don't know the color. You don't know the race. You don't know the male or female. You don't know, but you know what you're touching? A human. You're touching somebody else that has fears and dreams just like you. Who am I to try to discount them, right? What's my job to do? And I think it's not that I've changed my mind about that, but I've become aware that people are hurting. People have pain points. People have fears, but they also have dreams. And I know that hope is greater than fear if you allow yourself to share that and with other like-minded people. And so it wasn't that I necessarily changed my mind. I've just become more aware uh, and looking at that and going, boy, we got to fix this thing. And then how do you do that? How do you begin to look at these massive problems we have around the country? How do you begin to fix something like that? And I think it happens one household at a time. For example, financially, we can't wait on the White House to try to save the day. Like we've seen this. We still got 9 million people standing out by the mailbox waiting on a stimulus check that hasn't shown up. 
The government's not going to save the day. What we have to do is put on our own cape. And what I mean by that is have a plan. Get on our budget. Let's balance our budget. Let's have a debt reduction plan. Let's have an emergency fund for our family and invest for our future. We just have to focus on it one house at a time. Because when we get our house in order, what we can do is then reach out and help someone else in a meaningful way. It's like the man in the mirror, man. It's like what, uh, you know, Michael Jackson said it best, right? Yeah. How do you change the world? You look at yourself and uh, you make some tough decisions and you step up to the plate, right? That's and right. obviously there's so much pressure. And I loved what you said about hope being greater than fear, but there's a lot of pressure in just living in this environment, right? But I'd be curious to know um, just something from you is how do you manage your emotions in times of stress or high stakes? <laughs> Well, my publicist might chime in on that one, but I think oftentimes managing emotions and high stress, what I tend to do is they tell me I go into the tunnel. Like they say, you know, Hogan, you get more and more focus, the more things get tense. And I do, I I really do. I put on the blinders and I'm looking at this thing that I got to get done. And, you know, there's positives with that, but there's also some negatives. And so I think what I want to do is have this period of awareness you know, and try to do it better. Uh, Meaning the pressure, like one of my coaches tells me, he goes, listen, pressure is a driver for you. You're not scared of it. He said, but what you don't want to do is isolate because of the pressure, meaning where you just begin to go inside yourself. He said, you need to make sure you've got some people around you that you can talk to, you know, to be able to make sure that, hey, I'm, I'm kind of managing that pressure just like a pressure cooker, right? It's got that little nozzle at the top because some steam has to be let out uh, for things to continue to operate effectively. Episode 58, ahead of the economic curve with Russell Gray. I think, you know, an, another opportunity, I think, coming out of this COVID-19 crisis is that, you know, well, Donald Trump and love him or hate him, okay, but he was a champion of bringing manufacturing back to the United States. He was saying, this is a problem, that true prosperity is actually making things, and those are good jobs, and we want those jobs here in the United States. You know, I had a chance to interview Donald Trump when he was candidate Donald Trump, and I asked him what a healthy housing market looked like in a Trump administration. He gave me a one-word answer, jobs, jobs. And his answer for jobs weren't service sector jobs, weren't um, you know, the government jobs. It was manufacturing jobs. That's what he went to work on. Well, you know, there were people that said, hey, that's never going to happen. You know, that that ship has sailed. Uh, we're always going to export our cheap labor, um, you know, export our, our, our jobs to so we can import cheap labor and enjoy cheap costs of goods. And, you know, that may continue to be the case. But we just found out that if you don't make your own medicine and you don't make your own masks and you have a pandemic and those supplies are mission critical, now your society is in trouble. Maybe it's worth paying a premium to have those things manufactured in the U.S. I'm pretty sure those manufacturing plants aren't going to be located in Manhattan or San Francisco or Seattle. They're probably going to end up in places like Kentucky and Tennessee and Arkansas, you know, where there is affordable land. There's access to transportation infrastructure because that's important when you're manufacturing finished goods. Software, you can upload anywhere and code anywhere. But if I've got to roll autos off the assembly line and get them to distribution centers, I need to be near a river. I need to be near railways. I need to be near uh, big airports. You know, so transportation infrastructure. And obviously, you know, one of the other things we've seen is retail has been imploding. And that was happening before COVID-19. 
is that as people have been stuck at home and aren't allowed to go to stores, the, the proliferation of online ordering and internet commerce has grown, which means distribution centers, places like Memphis, Atlanta, even Dallas, Texas, uh, who have great transportation infrastructure and are geographically, strategically located, uh, could, could all be winners. So I think that, you know, investors going forward are going to have to realize there's some things that have changed. There's some things that remain the same. And that if you're at a price point in a market that is likely to attract uh, the expansion of industry and that there is the possibility of manufacturing, some manufacturing could probably come back to the United States quicker because there's a lot of political motivation to make that happen. Uh, and you realize that people who are living in expensive areas have just discovered and their employers have just discovered it is actually possible to work remotely. And I don't need to pay $6,000 a month to live in a 200 square foot, you know, place where I'm breathing everybody else's air 24 seven because we're on top of each other. Uh, I can move to the country. I can move to suburbia. I can move out of state. I can move out of the country. So who's going to be the winner there? Well, you know, if I could had a choice between living in say central Florida or Manhattan, and the only reason I was in Manhattan is so I can do my work as an, you know, credit analyst or whatever. And I can do the same job from central Florida and enjoy the sunshine and play, pay one fifth and pay state, no state income tax. And my employer realizes they can pay me 20% less and I can have a better standard of living. I'm probably going to do that. And so are they. And so I think some of that's going to be happening. Obviously, these trends are going to take time to develop and we have to watch them. I would say these are more of investment hypotheses than they are strategies. But in terms of things I'm paying attention to, yeah. And marketplaces that have a limited supply of affordable housing, as people get crushed who are above you, they're going to be coming down. And that's going to put, you know, kind of a demand pillar underneath that middle market. And then, you know, I've been saying for a long time, I definitely would not want to be priced at top of market at the highest market in the highest product class. I want to be in the middle of everything so that there's always people above me who can come down in hard times. And in good times, there's always people below me who can come up. As everybody starts to get pushed down, the people at the very bottom are going to get pushed into the street. Now, you could see some gentrification, right? Because you're going to see people as they're moving from being in the middle to moving to the low, those C and D areas might start to come up a little bit uh, as, as the caliber of people who move in there that were used to living a certain way come. So I think there could be some, some opportunities there. But again, real estate is not macro. It is very local right down to the neighborhood. And so this is where you really have to depend upon your relationships with your team, your property manager, and, and, and people who really can see the trend. Because the macro, the stuff that you read on the news, the data, that's all looking in the rear view mirror. To see the future, you need to have your thumb on the pulse of what's happening right now. So you get data point in the past, data point in the now, based on anecdotal stuff from your boots on the ground and any stats you can get, how many applications came in, how much income do they make, you know, what's their credit scores, what's that profile trending like, and then that'll help you extrapolate it maybe into what the future looks like. So uh, it's an intellectual game to be a strategic real estate investor, but I think right now you do need to be strategic because you don't have the benefit of a lot of uh, uh, wind at your back right now. So, and, and you want to be careful uh, you don't want to make sure that anything you have in your portfolio that is marginal, you're either cleaning up or getting out 
and just so that you can really uh, circle the wagons around the stuff that's quality, quality markets, quality teams, quality niches, quality tenants that you really want to make sure that you're in a position of strength to hold on to. Absolutely. And it really goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of that curiosity and downloading so much information and making decisions based on that information, perhaps to skate where the puck is going. Hey guys, just a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back to the show. This episode of Elevate is brought to you by CF Capital. And you know how much I love real estate and how it can be a vehicle towards creating any outcome that you want in your life, which is really why we created CF Capital, a real estate investment firm that focuses on acquiring and operating multifamily assets that provide stable cash flow, capital appreciation, and a margin of safety for our investors, for our partners, and for the people that we serve. Our team leverages its expertise in acquisitions and management to provide investors like you with superior risk-adjusted returns while placing a premium on preserving capital. Our mission is to provide property investment and asset management solutions to help investors maximize their returns by investing in high-value multifamily communities. Our philosophy is that we can elevate communities together through this process. And I want to invite you to go check out cfcapllc.com because we have a free ebook that's called the bottom line, the 10 ways to increase cash flow in an apartment complex. And I want to tell you that this is a value packed ebook. So I want to, want to invite you to go check that out right now at cfcapllc.com. I think you're going to get a ton of value just from reading this, whether you apply it to your own business or whether you educate yourself further on what it would look like if you invested with CF Capital. So go check that out at cfcapllc.com. Again, that's cfcapllc.com and enjoy the rest of the show. Episode 102, Contribution Through Consistent Intentional Practice with Seth Godin. And it seems like the, the you know, really the catalyst towards, you know, stopping people from taking action is fear at the end of the day. It's fear of criticism or fear of failure. And, you know, one thing that I, I love about your work as well is that you talk about the paradox in risk. You know, folks that feel that if they take risk, you know, they may fail and that could be the worst thing ever. And then, you know, their primitive brain also thinks that, you know, the criticism is the worst thing that could ever happen to them. Could you talk about a little bit about maybe both of those concepts and in, in the way that you perceive fear as well as risk? Yeah, well, so this is what the new book is about. Yeah, it's called The Practice. And what I am arguing is that um, each of us has a practice for our creative work. And creative work is not being a novelist. Creative work is simply doing something that might not work, shipping something to the world that might not work. And we have invented an enormous amount of soft tissue to protect us from doing creative work, to come up with a reason why we're not qualified, why it's not the right time, to obsess about irrelevant criticism. We built social media just to make us feel consumed by what strangers think of us to amplify our fear of showing up with something worthwhile. That we fall into dozens of traps, a, a couple of them are, we believe all criticism is the same, which is just not true, right? That if, uh, if you're a stand-up comic and you bomb one night, but then you find out later that no one in the audience spoke English, <laughs> the fact that you bombed is sort of irrelevant. It was your agent's fault, not yours. And to, equate negative feedback with bad work is a real problem unless you're distinguishing who the feedback is from. So I haven't read an Amazon review in eight years. And the reason is simple. 
because I've never met an author who said, I read all my one-star reviews and now I'm a much better writer. What a one-star review means, and uh, I'm delighted to say J.K. Rowling has way more one-star reviews than I do. (laughs) What a one-star review means is, this book wasn't for me. Okay, great. I don't have to read anything else. You just told me who you are. You didn't tell me anything about the book. And the same thing is true if you're a salesperson. The same thing is true if you're a poet. The same thing is true if you're a parent. That in any given moment, what criticism is telling you is that this person with this history, with this story, under these auspices, it didn't work for them. Okay, fine. Now what are you going to do about it? And I believe each of us is capable of having a practice. Each of us is capable of getting better at the skill that we have sought to master. And we got to get out of our own way and stop trying to be perfect because perfect isn't available. And if you have a product or service or, you know, just what you stand for appeals to the masses, it's likely not to be something that people are passionate about. That's another thing that you talk about a lot as well, which I find highly interesting is to really carve your, your niche and your path and, and go for that and don't recognize that everyone's going to, going to give you a five-star review, right? Yeah. I mean, there's 300 million people in the United States and on a good day, my blog gets read by a million people around the world. Uh, at least 280 million people in the United States have never heard my name. Not once. Fine. Terrific. That's not my goal. I am not trying to be Nike or Heinz or anything in between. I am trying to find the smallest viable audience, the smallest group of people who I can help narrate a future for. And if someone doesn't get the joke, fine with me. Episode 115, Self-Awareness, Mastery, and the One Thing with best-selling author Jay Papazon. One thing I think of is, is, you know, as it relates to self-awareness, you know, that's something that it's kind of a journey in itself, right? And you just even yeah. described like later in your life was when you really started to become so much more aware. But when you started to make those shifts, I mean, what did you see in terms of a transformation of your life? Why was that important for you? When you can actually see what makes you tick, when you're aware of the values that drive your decisions, I think a lot of us make decisions and we regret them or we're happy with them afterwards. But just taking a little bit of time over time to see if there's a pattern and try to get some sort of shorthand for why that is the way it is, right? to know thyself just a little bit. It doesn't have to have like, it doesn't need to be a dossier where you've broken all these things down. But if you're willing to be curious, you can see not only where your strengths are, but where your weaknesses are. And just have to be honest. Like, I think that um, you don't have to make all of your weaknesses into strengths. I think that's not normal. Um, I think I think if you have really outsized talent somewhere that you develop and that takes a lot of time, that means you're gonna have gaps. I remember reading Sherlock Holmes. I was an addict on all things Sherlock Holmes. And there's this passage in one of them where he doesn't even understand truly that the earth, uh, how the earth moves around the sun or the sun moves around the earth. Like he doesn't understand and he doesn't care because it doesn't apply to criminal science. Hmm. And, you know, the Dr. Watson is incredulous. Like, how can you not know how the solar system works? And he's like, I've never thought of, I don't care about it basically. But that was like an aha moment. It's like, if you invest the time to be good at something, that necessarily is gonna create a gap somewhere else. And like, I love my wife for all of her wonderful qualities. 
And I can also know that she is an imperfect creature. And I guarantee you, she could say the same about me. That doesn't make us like lovable or unlovable. It just means we're human. So like that exploration that we can get beyond judgment and just into understanding, man, we start to make such better decisions about how we invest our time, who we hang out with, right? Those are big decisions that we take for granted unless we've done a little bit of this analysis. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing that I love about having this conversation with you is just your intense curiosity in so many different directions that really focused on, you know, improvement, right? Self-improvement, but also your intense curiosity with, you know, patterns, you know, not only within yourself, but within other people, perhaps successful people. One of the things we talk about here is that we, you know, this show is for people who have a desire or burning desire to be extraordinary, right? And, you know, you have to observe those patterns and apply, right? Identify and apply what works for you, and then perhaps make some adjustments. But, you know, if you had to look at, you know, some of the top patterns, maybe it's the top two or three patterns that you've observed in the most successful that either you've collaborated with or that you've studied over the years, what would those be? Can I cheat on you here a little bit and talk about what those patterns are? Oh, yeah. So this is a language I get um, for the last 20 years, I've gotten to work with Gary Keller. And for 18 of those, we were writing books together. And there are times where we spend a lot of time together. And there are times when we haven't, but there's been a long period of time. And one of the hallmarks of why he's a self-made billionaire and has had amazing impact in the world is we call it modeling. I don't have no idea what else to call it. But what we're looking for is take a big topic like money. You can read all of these books and there's a lot of conflicting information because the reality is there is more than one way to skin a proverbial cat. But if you look under, there's usually a pattern of commonality between the people who do something exceptionally well, right? The gold medalist. And I hate that I used the now skin a cat. Like who's going to sell it back? That's like an old thing that we don't even know what it means anymore. Who skins cats, right? Nobody skins cats. Where does that even come from? (laughs) Um, But the, the idea would be is if you thought you might want to climb Mount Everest, you would go out and you would read the biographies or you would interview, study you know, nine or 10 of the people who were most successful and look for what they had in common. And often those commonalities, not the things that they uniquely do, which might line up with some unique characteristic they have that you're never going to have, right? There's usually some best practices that apply across a broad group of people. And the thing that Gary's done, and it's so funny, I'll be talking to him like, where did you get this idea? And he'll point to a book, like literally we were looking at Psycho-Cybernetics from like 1974. Amazing book, amazing book. But incredibly dated, like it's hard to read today, (laughs) but there's some real wisdom there. Sure. And what I realized is here he is fresh out of college from Baylor. He decides that this is the right idea. And in his mind, and today I would use Evernote or a journal, I'd say, okay, this is what I've decided I believe about this part of management or this part of self-image. That was psycho-cybernetic self-image. Mm-hmm. And he created what he thought is like his true statement, his principle, his model, either from multiple people on that, but that then becomes an anchor. When someone says, what do you think about self-image? He goes all the way back to 1974, references that, but over time, he's always willing to top grade it. And I, I can tell you over 20 years, I've watched him just say, nope, this is not a better idea. Or you know what? We need to add to this idea. And the ideas build on each other. And so like that process, when you talk about excellence and patterns, 
to me, that's the process. I'm not just reading books to get new ideas. That leads to what I call fad surfing. It's not my phrase, someone else said it, but I, I love it because I know a lot of people that are self-improvement junkies that are always doing some new challenge. I'm intermittent fasting and now I'm doing this and now I'm doing the meat only diet because I heard about it on a podcast. And the problem with those is that you're kind of jumping from one thing to the other. And there's this thing that happens over time where you build momentum around doing something extraordinarily well and refining it and refining it for you. So I kind of think that we should be a lot slower to adopt patterns of behavior, a lot more skeptical on the front end and once we've adopted it, we need to have a test in order to change it and just say, wow, is this really a better idea or is this just different? Because in my experience, like one of the things all these successful people keep telling me, 99% of success is just making peace with boredom. Mm. There's so many repetitive things that they just had to keep doing and keep doing well that add up to so much more than any individual day of doing it. Episode 45. Strengthening relationships through mindfulness with Rob Giltner. You know, so one person, the type of person that might really drain me is very, very negative. Right. And so and I, if I'm around that, um, and, and if it's not a client, because some clients come in and it's really negative. But when you're in my yeah. office, you know, it's a medical mall. So I don't see all that. My see is, okay, we're walking together to try to get you out of this tough place. Yeah. But if I'm at... You know, um, you're looking to serve people on that. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, and you it's expect very different perspective. Bring them. Yeah. But yeah, if I'm understand. out at a, you know, like what's something we do a lot? I mean, we were at a basketball game. Yeah. If I'm at a basketball, oh, we were at a basketball game, yeah, and exactly. the people behind yeah. us, we're big Kentucky fans, but sometimes Kentucky fans can be crazy. Oh yeah. And so they're all <laughs> saying all these negative stuff. Jeez. And let's say you weren't there because you kind of built, you helped me get some resiliency to that. Yep. But if I was there by myself, I would start getting codependent. And that is, I'm, I'm having loss of self because of these people's negativity. Yeah. So loss of self could be, you know, maybe I lose sleep, but in that moment I didn't. So I lost the enjoyment of the game. So I, that's loss of self. So way do you get that back is mm. one, to protect yourself, build, build boundaries. But one is to be mindful of that it's happening. And the big thing with mindfulness is not to judge your emotions or not to judge your thoughts, just observe them. Mm. So okay, I'm starting to feel negative from the negativity around me. And like I would if I was going to lean back and look at the clouds, the clouds are just going right on by. And so I'm not analyzing them. I'm not trying to solve them. I'm just observing my thoughts and feelings and almost welcoming that those negative emotions like I would a friend. So, hey, negativity or hey, stress. You know, how are you doing? Good to see you, buddy. And you welcome it. And you, then after that, you kind of see it, see it go away like a cloud. And you're just, your role with those thoughts or emotions is just to observe them. It's super powerful. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like one of the most useful practices yeah. like on the planet. Mm -hmm. I mean, because how many times in your day do you get irritated, you get annoyed, mm -hmm. or you get, you know, frustrated, or you get, you know, stressed, mm -hmm. or whatever it may be. And it's like your emotions are really just trying to keep you alive. Yeah. They're trying to pass on the gene. Exactly. They're trying to su support and help you. They're protecting you. Yeah. Even sadness, fear, all the protect you. But I just got to want to say one thing yeah, because this is my therapy mode kicking in. Keep doing it. If someone's listening and they're in maybe a very toxic or abusive relationship, yeah. mindfulness isn't enough. You, okay. know, you have to set boundaries and that those boundaries could be what are ways that I can protect myself? 
Mm. So if I'm having, if I'm married to if my physically, yeah, yourself, yeah. yeah. And, and, emotionally, and emotionally, because people okay. can be emotionally abusive. So you'd have to set boundaries to, to have resiliency to, to, to them. And a lot of people yeah. say, gosh, I can't do that uh, because maybe the abuser, you know, responds with anger and they test the boundaries or I'm more of a people person. And every time I say to that is, well, if you protect yourself, you're pleasing yourself. But uh, I just want to say that That's the good. mindfulness and just observing that is big. But if you're actually being abused anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah the boundaries yeah, are yeah. key. So I just had to throw that. Well, out there. if you are, you know, you know, we'll put links into the show notes of where you can <laughs> yeah. where you can contact Rob. And actually, I'll just real quick, it's robyildner.com is one mm-hmm. one way. But um, you know, you're talking about the mindfulness and just like as the example at the basketball game, it's like, oh my gosh, like what are you talking about? Like yeah. this team is awesome, like this yeah. is so much fun. Like we get to be here, you know, and cheer on, you know, a team that we love, uh, and just enjoy life and you have these negative comments mm-hmm. and the, you know, we we get swept in, up in it too. Yeah. It's like my heart starts racing. Yeah. And you're like, Yeah, <laughs> and, and then you start like but then when you I guess it's a it, because of the practice and when you train your mind to say, Hey, you know what? I don't have to believe that, or I don't have to, you know, step into that emotion mm-hmm. and just watching it and like letting it. One thing that uh, Tony Robbins talks about, and I probably say that every single show, mm-hmm. I just one thing that Tony Robbins talks mm-hmm. about. He says that emotion lasts 90 seconds. Mm-hmm. Each emotion lasts 90 seconds. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you've recognized as well? Or? Yeah, I don't know. It'd be 90 seconds because you know, it, it could be shorter or longer. But I, you know, that's a good point because it depends on you know. The, Obviously, the you can get festered into it, and it can yeah, last exactly. longer. Yeah, exactly. So you can. So let's say road rage is really bad because that's yeah. something. Uh, <laughs> We were going to, we do, went to school at UofL. If anybody would come out and cause an inconvenience, you would, you would lose it. <laughs> I have uh, a little bit of road rage. But I've driven you with you now, and that doesn't happen. I, but, meditation. So, so what, and so, I, you know, I'll say it too. It's happened with me. It happened the other day on the way to work that, you know, someone pulled out, you know, came, ran a red light and then flicked me off like I was in the wrong, even though I was just wanted a green light. And I was just stewing over. I was like, what type of person could this be? Why are they doing right. this? So what, what, are, what are they like? And I caught myself being like, oh my gosh, I am grabbed on to this emotion and just sat with it mm-hmm. and just let it stewed and marinate all over me. And man, it was gross. And so then I zoomed back even more and said, no, that's just an emotion and I'm just going to let it go. And then it went back and that's a skill people have to build. Yeah. And sometimes you have to work at that. And one way to practice it, you know, practice this mental and emotional hygiene is to the mindfulness breathing. But I'm also very, very big on like when we're at the lake, we did mindfulness where we we're just mindful of all the sounds we heard around us. Yeah. Episode 83, superhuman performance with Bulletproof founder and chairman, Dave Asprey. All life forms. Whether you're a bacteria, a cactus, or a zebra, a human, it doesn't matter. You follow an algorithm. And this is one you could program into AI. By the way, if you're an AI researcher, do not program this in because this would create Skynet. So that's bad. But what you do is, number one, and you overweight this by 10 times, run away from, kill, or hide from scary things. Okay? That's pretty good because life will not continue if it gets eaten by other life. So there you go. And there's various ways of protecting yourself. You can freeze, you can hide, you can do whatever. Then the next thing you have to do is eat everything because famines kill things. They just don't kill you right now. They kill you tomorrow, right? And then, so if the first one's fear, second one is food. Um, Those are both F words. And then you have the third thing (laughs) that all life forms have to do. Do you know which one that one is, Tyler? 
I'm guessing right now. I think I got some, I got a guess here. Fertility, right? Yeah, exactly. There you go. That's not what you were thinking. <laughs> I was thinking fun, you know, but who knows? Oh, they, okay, that, that was a nice save. I, I'm going to give you yeah. credit there. Uh, <laughs> you got you. the first two letters right. So now if not dying right now is 10x, not starving is 5x, and if you don't reproduce the species, you'll be dead in generation. That gets three times more attention than it deserves. Mm. Okay. So now I just got to ask you, what have you ever done that you're ashamed of that wasn't one of those three things? Hmm. That's really interesting when you break it down like that. I think a lot of the listeners are probably reflecting right now, maybe pausing and saying, hey, let me ask that. Let me answer that question. That's, an, that's well, really interesting. The reason you're doing those things is that the operating systems, these things before the software that sits on top of the operating system, those processes are automated. They come from inside of your cells and they're a network effect throughout the entire body. And there's seven layers of your prefrontal cortex and they're all filtering stuff out that you can't see, but your body can see. And its priorities are set that way and your priorities are set your way. So the mm. better you come at mastering the unconscious networks in your body, brain interconnectivity, the more you remove trauma, trauma is just emotions that are tied to something that happened. And I guarantee you, the last time that you, you nursed on your mom and the next time you wanted a boob and you didn't get a boob, you were really, really pissed, right? It's a human experience. It doesn't matter. But if you were held on to that anger, I swear, I have sat down with 50-year-old people with hundreds of millions of dollars who still have a trauma about that. Mm -hmm. Right. And it feeds the, I don't have enough. There's not enough. Right. And it's not intentional. It's not bad parenting. It's just that these dumb little balls of meat that we are, are trying to figure out how to live without you in there. And they're building rules that they put in before you can think. And then you sit there in a board meeting or with a partner, whether it's a, a you know, at home partner or a business partner, and they say something and it reminds your system, not you, of something that happened 25 years ago that you don't even think about, you don't even know about anymore. And then it triggers a feeling, you believe the feeling to be reality, and then you tell the person to go F themselves for no good reason. That kind of stuff is burning huge amounts of things. So what I believe is that if you get your biology working right, you have enough energy to do personal development. And if you do your personal development right, especially with technology or with ancient practices, it doesn't really matter. If you do that, you can actually turn off those reactive systems. And what you get is freedom and tons of extra time and tons of extra energy and the ability to focus on stuff you care about. That's what I do. That's huge. And this is, this is so much fun, by the way. Um, and, and I just want to get down into that. You mean, talk about mastering the unconscious networks in your body. I mean, talk to us about some habits and some, some strategies for, for overcoming that, because I know we're all, we're all unconscious beings to a certain degree until we reach that, that level of consciousness. So let's talk about that. You know, it really depends on your age, uh, your upbringing and, and things like that. But there are some core techniques that work really, really well. And breath work is a very powerful one. I had not done any of this stuff until probably my, my early 30s. Um, still, that's relatively, in, in terms of the recent renaissance of breathing, um, it's pretty early. But I sat down my first yoga class and I breathe in this nose and breathe in. And I'm like, I can't connect this. Why? It doesn't make any sense. Well, it turns out that <laughs> breathing has evolved in a similar way in almost every old society around the planet where they know if you breathe in five seconds, hold your breath for five seconds, breathe out for five seconds, you do this for a while, it actually changes things. And you breathe through your nose, not your mouth. Things like that work. So I would tell you, pick up a breathing practice. And there are many of them. You can try you know, the Wim Hof breathing, which is going to make you trip balls. And you know, <laughs> you know, get, take a cold shower. I've been promoting those for almost 10 years now. It's a good thing to be uncomfortable for brief periods of time. 
But breathing is interesting because most of the time, until you've had some training of your nervous system, if you just breathe out all the way out uh, and just hold your breath empty, <laughs> most people get a panic sensation pretty darn quickly. But look, it's your body lying. You're not going to run out of oxygen if you don't bring air in for the next 30 seconds or even one minute, right? Why is it harder to hold your lungs empty than full? You have plenty of oxygen. You can measure it in your blood. Well, some system in you is lying because it's afraid you're going to die. Episode 23, Defining Success and Paying It Forward with Dr. Bradley Calabrese. I mean, the whole point of this is like, we're talking about somebody who is world renowned, you know, somebody who has, you've worked to get there. Mm -hmm. I know this hasn't Mm -hmm. come uh, naturally. And so I do want to know, you know, I want to know the core of you. I want to know like what's deep down and and, like, tell me more about Dr. Calabrese behind this bio. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, what I think about um, is you think about success, you know, and how you define success. Um, And some people define it financially. Yep. um, And they'll define it, you know, or through stature and power, you know, um, you know, but there's a lot of ways to define success and there's a lot of paths to get to be successful. Um, you know, and I tell, I give lectures on business of plastic surgery and the business of surgery. Um, and in that conversation, you know, um, I always tell the plastic surgeons not to compare themselves to me because, you know, in business, you, you know, in, in life, you can't be great at everything, mm-hmm. right? So whenever you're going to be successful and try to be successful and really be the best at that area, whether it be an athlete or in business, something suffers on the other side of it mm-hmm. and your skill set somewhere else is gonna, going to go down because if you try to be great at everything mm-hmm. it creates global mediocrity it's doesn't you're not no longer going to be expert because you can't so for some people maybe it's being father of the year and maybe those responsibilities are how they judge their success their mm-hmm. children and everything else and that's a highly admirable and a, a great way to define success you know, and I, and I, you were just describing all the things that I do in a year and I travel, you know, internationally all the time and I lecture and I have a fellowship. I now have a fellowship. Um, plus I have the two, the residents that come from the university of Louisville and Kentucky. So we have, I'm teaching all the time. I do preceptorships here. I published, I got last year, I won the award for the best paper of 2018 in the aesthetic surgery journals, which was one of our big, um, plastic surgery journals. Um, so and you think, well, that's not, you know, that's not being in the business of plastic surgery. And you're exactly right. Because all those things that you just described, half of what my bio were all things that I don't make money at. Mm-hmm. I don't go and lecture for money. Um, you do it for other reasons, you know. So, so you said I'm very highly acclaimed and successful. I am a key opinion leader around the world as it relates to breast. Um, but that came without financial gains on the other side of it. And yet you can define that as one of the ways you would define my success. You know what I mean? So I think for, for people as, they, as I think, talk to them about success, it is if you're constantly searching for the next dollar to, and that's how you're gonna judge your success, then you're gonna miss the big opportunities that lie ahead, right? Mm-hmm. And so I can't separate out why I'm busy in clinical practice. And was that because um, I'm just a good plastic surgeon. Is it because I have done all these other things and people understand what I've done in my, in my involvement and that makes me busy? It's hard to know. I think that you do your very, very, very best. and You try to be smart about business and you hope at the end of the day you are financially successful and comfortable and there's ways to get there and do that and be smart in business. Um, and at the same time, follow your passions and, and, and define your success by something more than how much money you actually make um, from doing each event. Because along the way, you're not going to make money at everything you do, but they become part of the whole package that creates 
who you are and what your business is and what you stand for. And I think, you know, that's extremely important as a part of what defines who I am. How would you define success? Yeah, I think success, well, I think ultimately success is defined by happiness and joy. Um, and so it's different people need different things to find happiness and joy um, in their life. And for me, it is to make sure I've lived a full and complete life, right? And that I've done all that I can possibly do to, you know, to deserve this life. You know, and I've had a lot of privilege. Um, I, I grew up in very humble, you know, I, mean, I lived in, a, I taught my staff, I was like, you know, I grew up in a trailer. I went to high school living in a mobile home, right? I came, I know everybody's life. It's like, I didn't have this great success in front of me. I, my, nobody was a doctor in my family. Um, and so you find a path from that, you know, out into what you do. And, and so you, in, in the process of it, you want to be happy. Reaching my goals has never created happiness for me, hmm. right? You know, I think happiness is a byproduct of how you live your life how you live each day and how you challenge yourself each day um, in order to reach those goals. And in reaching those goals, so you need goals because it's what drives you to the next place, but your happiness is gonna be on how you live your daily life with your friends and your family and the people you care about and how you treat your employees and how you feel like you're in some way being productive um, and contributing. Hey guys, I just wanted to take a brief time out from this show, this incredibly mind expanding discussion to speak to the high achievers, the high performers. I wanted to speak to those who have a burning desire to go to the next level and beyond. First of all, I hear you and I see you. When I got started as a real estate entrepreneur, fresh out of my W2 corporate job, I was excited and jubilant to create and design my future. At the same time, my business and life was filled with confusion, filled with fear, doubt, uncertainty, and to be honest with you, sometimes even sleepless nights and hopelessness even while experiencing what many would have considered substantial success. Ultimately, I mustered up the courage to hire one of the world's top high-performance business coaches to work directly with me on creating strategies, systems, and profound shifts towards accelerating my multifaceted performance and to become an industry leader. After years of investing significant resources into myself and in my business through this process, I am now paying it forward as a high-performance coach to those who feel called to elevate to the extraordinary. Wherever you are right now, you know deep down that you have it within you to be great. If you're someone who's seriously looking to elevate your business, your real estate portfolio, your cash flow, your deal flow, your network, your net worth, your lifestyle, and ultimately your life right now and ongoing for the rest of your life, I have a message for you. Because if that's you, then I invite you to visit coachwithtyler.com. I have limited coaching spots available to guide people like you who want to substantially close the gap from where you are to where you want to be. These are first come, first serve, and demand high-touch, one-to-one focus from me directly to you. And this is not for everyone. This is only for those who are decisive, committed, and willing to do whatever it takes. It's only for those willing to play full out and invest time, energy, and resources into themselves to achieve greatness in real estate investing and beyond which is what we're all about on this podcast. This is for those defiantly inspired for transforming as an empowered, limitless, and unstoppable human being in full control of their and their business's future. If that is you, I invite you to visit coachwithtyler.com. Again, that's coachwithtyler.com where you can apply for this life-changing opportunity. We will then schedule a discovery session where we will directly discuss what's working, not working, and how we can work together to accelerate your future. With that said, enjoy the rest of the show. Episode 96, 
confident decision-making with best-selling author and former professional poker player, Annie Duke. What I think is pretty interesting is that when we think about, okay, when we look at an outcome, how much are we sort of willing to dig around in here to imagine that luck might have actually played quite a big role? And it turns out that that's asymmetrical. And this is actually a really big problem with trying to solve for resulting, which is that we love to dig around in the bad results. And the reason that we love to dig around in the bad results is that, um, well, you can kind of win to it, right? Like, okay, I lost money, I feel sad but maybe at least the decision-making was good. So I'm going to dig around in there. Maybe it turns out that I actually didn't lose money because of my bad decision-making. I lost money because like there was some luck involved. Okay. So we're very eager to go and dig around in, in the bad results, but we are not at all eager to go and dig around in the good results. Mm-hmm. Reason is that if you win, you're like, I feel pretty good about myself. I'm a good decision-maker. Look at right. me. Look at what I managed to create. So if you go digging around in the good results, you're actually risking just losing to that, which is, well, maybe it was just luck that got me here. And the reason why I think about this in terms of like stock market or real estate is that both of them are very often in, in, in situations where what would be called beta, which is just like if you indexed, if you just sort of bought the real estate market in a particular area and you didn't really make any active decisions about it, that you would do pretty well, right? Because we have periods where real estate is just kind of on an upward march. Um, certainly the stock market in general over time is on an upward march. So what I think is interesting about that is that in, in any kind of investing, people can invest, they can have positive outcomes. In other words, they can be doing better than zero, but they don't actually dig around in there to see, well, would I be doing better if I were like just in an index fund? Right? So if the real estate market is like, going up at, you know, it just happens to be like a super hot, hot, hot market or whatever. And like, you know, over the past five years, it's kind of gone up like 5% year over year or 10% year over year. And you've been doing your active strategy and you're earning 7% year over year instead of 10% year over year. It's pretty easy to feel good about yourself, but you're actually just lucky because you're doing worse. <laughs> you're doing worse than if you took a passive strategy. Right. Um, And so I actually find that really interesting, like these spaces where you can win. But if you actually look at it against an index, you're losing. But because of resulting, we don't actually dig into that to actually discover that. So I know that was a little bit of a tangent, but it just kind of made me think about that. Episode 80, creating investment opportunities with CF Capital co-founders, Tyler Chesser and Brian Flaherty. And I love what you you ask the question all the time of, what's the downside here? You know, what's the worst that could happen? And it's not, it's not from a pessimistic standpoint. It's, it's from a, you know, protection standpoint, it's from mm-hmm. a safety standpoint. And, you know, I just think it's, it's very important to have that mentality. And, you know, it's certainly, it's one of these things that, you know, what you look at a lot of deals and you say, wow, you know, I'd love to do that deal. And unfortunately, you know, someone else grabbed that deal for a very aggressive number. And we look back and we say, it would be great to have that asset, but you know, no deal is perhaps better than a bad deal. And, you know, let's talk a little bit about sort of the process. Obviously, we look at so many deals, and many of them don't work, right? I mean, we go through the rigorous thing where it's like, hey, this is stress test. And guess what, you know, this, this and this caused our our acquisition cap rate to be x, y, and z. And also, let me just say real quick, if, if you're listening to this, and your head is spinning, reach out to us, we'll dumb it down for sure. 
So if any of this is going right over your head, you know, let us be the expert for you, but we're more than happy to educate you further on that. So if you yeah, want to comment and, on and that, walk you through, through an example, but, but Tyler, I wish I could say most deals, uh, don't work, but the majority don't work for us. Yeah. I, I always kind of say for every hundred deals that pass our desk, maybe we underwrite 30 of those. Um, we'll kick out 70% just because, you know, they're not the right location. They're in a submarket that we're not bullish on. They may not be the vintage that we want for whatever host of reasons. We'll typically take that hundred and 30 of those kind of make it through our model, through our process. So of that 30, about one in three of those. So about 10 out of the 30 hit all of our metrics. And we say, you know, we like the property itself. We like the market as a whole. We think there's growth coming in that sub-market. We can source attractive debt for our business plan and it will hit the return metrics that you and I like to provide investors. So of those 10, or excuse me, of those 30, we'll put a formal offer in on 10 of those. Um, from those 10 that we offer on, you know, there's a lot of competition out there. There's folks that, you know, might be more aggressive than us, might have a cheaper cost of capital, uh, might just not know an asset as well as we do. Um, and they might win, but then for every one of those 10, there's probably one or two that you and I are going to pull off. And those are going to be the ones that we acquire. So when you back it back out for every hundred deals that we see and kind of take a high level look at we might acquire one or two of those. So, yep. you know, there, there are a number of deals. I mean, deals cross our desk, probably what, probably every day, sometimes, some I'd days, say multiple, two, yeah. yeah, some days, two, three, sometimes four, four, four deals will come across our desk every single day. So it is a very targeted few that we actually acquire because they meet all of our needs and requirements. And when a deal is under our control at that point, you know, it's gone through this process. It's gone through the rigorous testing and it's gone through this elimination process where, you know, like the first time that you and I talked on elevate was episode number five. So if you want to go back and listen mm -hmm. to that, it's accelerating through essentialism. And this is essentialism type of work. I mean, most things we say no to, and you know when when you are a part of our investors club, you are going to get notice that hey, look, we've got a new deal opportunity, and here's here's what that looks like, and here's what the asset looks like, here's what the returns look like, and so the process is getting to know us and getting in a conversation with us so that we can understand what are your goals, what are your intentions, what are your objectives, so that we can serve you, and so we can say hey, you know what, this may or may not be a fit for you. We may say you know what, actually, based on what I understand about you this is probably not the best vehicle for you, but more likely perhaps is that, you know, this is a great fit for you. And so you have the opportunity of reviewing those. Of course you can say, no, that's not interesting to me. Uh, otherwise you could say, absolutely, let's do this. And you can reap all of those benefits. And so it's super exciting, but I think we've covered a lot of the, really the tactical stuff. Um, is there anything you want to talk about on tactics before we talk, start talking about a little bit of the philosophical stuff? Do your listeners have another hour or two? Because <laughs> that's about how, how deep I would be happy to go. But no, I don't think so. I, I think at the end of the day, um, we're dialed in to all of our markets, our sub-markets. We're leaning on our best-in-class partners that we have in each of these markets. Um, if you have specific questions, please, please call Tyler and I. We are more than happy to walk through specific examples, deals, answer questions that you have on deals we're looking at or deals that you're looking at. We're, we're always happy to lend, 
lend a hand there. Um, and always happy to, to chat, to chat deal level. Yeah. And the other thing too, is like, sometimes you think about, it's like, Oh, you're just going to talk about your business on your podcast. Isn't that so self-serving? And I truly feel, and I know you, you agree with me on this is that when we share this, we recognize that we're providing new opportunities to other people, because what we're talking about is not really an easy process. I mean, this is not like you click your finger and a couple of days later you have an apartment complex and a good community under your control. And so, you know, we truly feel that these opportunities not only allow us to create abundance for our families and the people that we care about, but also for the people that partner with us. Episode 49, rewiring your brain for better decisions with Austin Perlmutter, MD. So the default state in America is that you are going to be unhealthy, unhappy, and have compromised decision-making by the effects of the modern world on your brain. So you have to understand that this is the setup and you have to have tools in place to, to know when you are being manipulated to make poor decisions. So that's, again, kind of the first step. One of the big aspects of that is understanding how digital media is intentionally manipulating your time, your attention, and your financial contributions to these products that you probably don't need. And so we developed this acronym for the book called the test of time, which is an easy tool that people can apply when they're engaging with digital media. It is T for time restricted, meaning set yourself a window of time that you're comfortable spending on the computer, the cell phone. Uh, and then I is for intentional, meaning have a plan. Don't just go on Facebook and wander around for three hours. If you want to go check on your cousin who had a new baby, see those pictures, comment, great. That's a plan. M is for mindful, meaning when you are engaging with these digital platforms, are you experiencing uh, negativity, stress, anxiety? If so, be aware of that. And maybe that's then the time to pull away. I think perhaps the best example of this right now is as it relates to news. In general, news is sensationalized. I don't think there's anyone out there debating otherwise. I mean, individual stations say that they're all fact-based, but they get to choose which facts they want to put out, even if they are truthful. And their goal is to keep your eyeballs on the station. So what we're talking about here is that news in general tends to take things and blow them a little bit out of proportion. Why do they do that? Because they know that that induces anxiety and stress in the human's body, makes them more likely to continue to pay attention to it. We have something called a negativity bias, which means we're more likely to pay attention to things that are negative in character. So being mindful of how you're consuming technology means that if you're watching the news and all of a sudden you're saying, I'm feeling really stressed, I'm feeling really anxious, you know, I'm all for being informed, but maybe that's the time to turn it off. And then E, which is the last part of T-I-M-E, is for enriching. And this one's pretty straightforward. It means you want to get a net benefit out of your technology exposure. So if you finish watching TV, surfing the web, playing on your phone, and you say, wow, that was a waste of my time, or I feel kind of crummy after doing that, or I really wish I would have instead gone exercising, then it's a time to reset and say, next time that I participate with digital media, I want to make sure I have my TIM of the time a little bit more buttoned down so that I am actually benefiting from it. So again, this is the first part of your question, which we're deep in the woods now, but the point is you need to understand how the modern world is manipulating your brain for poor decisions and have some, some ways of mediating that effect. Because if you don't, you're going to find yourself um, unhappy, unhealthy, and making poor choices. The other piece of that, I should have said mitigating, not mediating, but okay. So the other big part of that is 
you want to have strategies in place that are going to enable you to wire your brain for better decisions. And we can get into any of these or none of these as far as your level of interest. But what we found for the book is that getting sleep, yes, and Matthew Walker's book is a great way of learning about the importance of sleep, but also nature exposure, also mindfulness and meditative practices, also connecting with other people, also exercising. So these are things in addition to eating a healthier diet um, and specifically a diet that lowers inflammation that we believe are tools to enable you to, through neuroplasticity, which is the ability to change the wiring of your neurons, to literally rewire your brain for better choices. And when you do that, you are more likely to get the stuff that, you know, arguably we all care about in the first place, which is to be happy, healthy, and, and wise. Episode 36 expanding consciousness with best-selling author david allen so he taught me about mind the mind sweep and the next action concept and i went oh my god i i i felt fine and suddenly i felt extraordinarily fine so to me it wasn't like fixing some major problem it was more like exploring and, exp and experiencing something much like i'd done with drugs in the 60s you know come on i was in berkeley <laughs> in 68 so you know and not to escape but just to explore what are, the, mm -hmm. what are the spaces you could get to? You know, what, what is all this stuff? I'm glad so, we're going there because that's what I thought, you know, the first time I read your book and I looked at it and I, to be honest, I told you before the show, I said, man, I looked at your book. It was sitting on my bookshelf and I said, eh, I'll get to that. It looks, it looks a little boring to be honest with you. And I know I need to get more things done, but then I started reading it. And what you mentioned there in terms of expansion of consciousness did start to occur in my life. I started to feel more at peace more present. And when I started to implement these things, it's like, wow, I can actually be creative and I can be thoughtful. I can be my best self. And so it sounds like that was sort of the curiosity that kind of drew you in as well in terms of your passion. Yeah, yeah it was. But then it, it turned out over all these years, a whole lot, it, it, uh, interestingly, Tyler, the people most attracted to what I've done are the people who need it the least. Probably like you, you know, that probably by the time you came across myself, you were probably, if people, you asked people around you, they would already say, you're one of the most organized, productive, aspirationally focused people they know. And right. that's why you were interested in this because you already knew the value of system, but you already felt up to the edge. You couldn't go any further and you wanted to go further because you knew mm -hmm. you, could, you could do that. And so that's been the, the major audience, frankly, of the people most attracted to what I've done. Are, the cool thing about my life is I've gotten to hang out with some of the coolest, most productive people you'd ever meet because they were the people most attracted to this. I mean, the people who really need this are just too unconscious to think they need it. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, our audiences, you know, many real estate investors and many people who are just committed to, you know, raising the bar in their own life and pushing the limits. And, you know, in that, I know I can attest to this personally. It's like when you push those limits, more things come in and more opportunities come your way. And it's like, whoa, you start to get to this point where it's like, how am I going to do all this? Or how am I going to do any of this? Because you get analysis paralysis and you start to get to a point where it's like, oh my gosh, I don't know how to handle this input and how to maximize my output. And so, you know, really what you talk about in terms of, you know, doing that, it's a process. And so I'd be curious, you know, was yeah, that your and, experience or you see that? Yeah. Well, not only that, Tyler, those people, this audience listening to this right now, it's how many, how many plates are you spinning right now and how many hats are you wearing? Right. Much like the same issue of startups and entrepreneurs that have to wear a party hat. They have to wear a count the pennies hat. They have to wear a, 
They have to wear a marketing hat. They have to wear a, a hiring hat. They have to wear a firing hat. I'm oh my God. Yeah. And it's so when you have all those roles, you know, because a lot of the people in the real estate business, at least from my, you know, there's obviously big real estate companies, but most of the people in the, the I would imagine the majority of the people that you're dealing with are people that, that are much more have their own game and have sort of built their own organizations, built their own staff, built their own uh, game in terms of what they're doing. Yeah. But e even so, I mean, I, a lot of the large or real estate organizations are big champions of my work. But the, but but yeah, it's all the different things that people have to then keep it keep track of. Yeah. So it's not just the volume, but it's the different variety of stuff. Mm -hmm. And for the different variety, boy, it's so easy to get down in the weeds and forget strategy. It's so easy to get down in the weeds when you're dealing with whatever and forget the bigger picture. So a lot of what my methodology is about is being able to externalize all those commitments at all those different levels, and then give yourself the opportunity to then lift up to whatever horizon you need to look at wow, this next week, what do I need to be aware of? Wow, I'm having a meeting with this particular major client. What do I need to be aware of? Mm -hmm. And so all of those, you know, sort of require the, the beforehand, the clarification of the contents of my commitments and the things I need to be aware of when I move into those contexts. And that's the algorithm I figured out. How do you get that meeting off your mind? How do you get that client off your mind? because there's an inverse relationship between on your mind and getting done. So anybody listening to this that's got stuff, projects that, you, that are bugging you, that are waking you up at three o'clock in the morning or whatever, that just means you're not appropriately engaged with it yet. There are decisions about it you haven't made about what you need to do, what are the active moving parts, you know, and where do you need to park a reminder of that for you or the right people to see at the right time. So that's off your mind. So inverse relationship between on your mind and getting done. The more things are on your mind, the less it's happening and you're the bottleneck. Episode 87, training your brain for unlimited abundance with mindset expert, John Azarath. When I was 23, I went around the world from, um, for 14 months from the age of 22 to 23, September 82 to November 83. And when I came back, I worked so hard to like make back the money that I just spent traveling around the world. I spent $72,000 in 14 months traveling around the world. And I was working so hard, I ended up with severe ulcerative colitis. And ulcerative colitis is ulcers in your colon, and mine were bleeding ulcers. And so it was, I mean, so painful and so uncomfortable. And um, then I said, uh, well, it's not that I said, I watched a TV show and they were talking about psychoneuroimmunology. Back then, there's a big word, new word back then, just mind-body connection. And the doctor said, well, listen, if you think about your disease, you uh, expand your disease. If you think about health, you know, then you're in a state of at ease. So I started to um, look at the cause of the colitis. And number one reason was stress. Number two could be because I was probably partying too hard. Uh, number three, uh, you know, I wasn't exercising. Uh, number four, I probably wasn't eating great. And so I said, okay, let's see if this psychoneuroimmune shit works. Um, so I said, I'm going to get a perfect diet. I'm going to start to exercise. I'm going to do this thing called uh, meditation and visualization. And we'll see what happens. Now, for over a year, I was on 25 pills a day called uh, pills, which is an anti-inflammatory sulfate to reduce the inflammation in my colon. Uh, I was doing two 
Betanasol enemas a day, morning at night, which is cortisone in your rectum. I was doing a sigmoidoscopy once a month, which means I have to go to the hospital for them to insert a tube to see all the way as far as they can up my colon from the wrong side to see how bad the colitis was, how much inflammation there was. And the last session that I had with Dr. Wu, who was my doctor, um, was, John, if this doesn't get better, we're going to have to remove part of your colon. Mm. I'm like, what? Are you freaking kidding? What do you mean you have to remove part of my colon? He says, it's getting really bad. It's precancerous. And I'm like, holy shit. No pun intended. And, um, and so then I saw this, this TV show, and I just got serious. And five weeks later, I have a health affirmation. My body and all its organs were created by the infinite intelligence of my subconscious mind. It created all my muscles, bones, tissues, and organs. It knows how to heal me. It knows how to make me perfectly whole right now. Magnificent are the creative forces that lie within me. I am now perfectly healthy. It's, I have it written down over there. I listen to it almost every single day. I teach it to people all over the world. And by doing just a little bit of this, five weeks later, all symptoms gone. Mm. Gone. No more pills. No more enemas. No more sigmoidoscopies. And when I went to the doctor for the final sigmoidoscopy, he says, oh, everything's, every, everything's healed. Um, I want you still on the pills. And I said to Dr. Wu, I said, you don't get this. I fixed the cause. You're wanting to treat the symptom. I've not been on any medication for the last 40 years. Episode 92, Leveraging the Power of Crowdfunding with Jillian Sadoti. And you are, you're really more than an attorney. You're more than, you know, an SEC sort of facing attorney. So, I mean... How would you describe sort of being an advisor? I mean, how else do you advise your clients beyond sort of the construction and the operation of their team? So what I basically tell them is that you need to, if, you, if you're not good at something, hire somebody to do it for you because the time it will take you to learn how to do things is not worth it. So for example, like a lot of times what my clients will do is try to build their own website and that's just a waste of your time. If you're, if you're a, an amazing real estate entrepreneur, why are you spending time being a webmaster? Um, so find somebody to do it for you. Um, uh, but the, the big thing is, is that, look, you, you need to have a good outward facing, you know, image when you're out raising capital, and then you need to back it up with great systems. And so what do those systems include? A good database, an amazing bookkeeper, books and records, um, and a good investor relationship, um, model. And what I mean by that is right up front, you're going to tell the investors how you're going to report to them and then you're going to do it. So if you tell them, I'm going to report to you every quarter on the 15th day after the quarter ends, then you best do that and tell, and, and just don't tell them what you're going to do. Tell them how you're going to do it. We're going to do it on zoom. I'm going to get, and then I'll give you the recording when the zoom call is over, like, or I'm going to write it up and I'm going to distribute it or, you know, however it is, that's what you need to do. Or maybe you want to do it once a month, once a month, we're going to do an investor call. That's when you can ask all your questions. We'll record them. We'll archive them. You can take, you can read, uh, listen to them anytime you want.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, that, that's great. I think it, it does come down to communication. And one of the things just to highlight from what you said earlier, you know, folks who are, are getting perhaps heat from the SEC in different ways are folks who are, you know, they're not delivering on their promises, or they're not properly right. communicating, or you know, they're not doing what they said they were going to do. So I think there's a lot of value in that. Let's talk about for uh, passive investors, you know, what are some tips that you would suggest for passive investors prior to executing a, you know, private placement memorandum? You know, how would you, how would you advise them legally? Uh, a big part of it would be just making sure, like, the funny thing is, is and then this is probably advice you've never heard before. Um, the big part of it is to read the operating agreement um, before you read the PPM. Because the operating agreement is actually the legal document that counts. And so you want to read the operating agreement and make sure it says what you've been told it should say. Um, I've actually found on more than one occasion operating agreements did, that didn't match the PPM at all. And, um, and that's unfortunate because then at the end of the day, most of the clients read the PPM and think like, oh, okay, this is what it is. I don't have to read the operating agreement. And then they don't read the operating agreement and then they find out the hard truth later. Um, and why does this happen? Um, bad drafting on the part of an attorney uh, and then the issuer not reading it. I read an operating agreement, if I can share this story with you. Please. I read an uh, op- operating agreement one day uh, that said, uh, you know, stuff, 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 stuff. And then in the definitions, it said something about like voting rights. And it said, um, to in order to make any major decision regarding the company, the company needs like two, it said something like you need like two thirds vote. And this person alone has two thirds vote and can make any of these decisions by themselves. Wow. You no, know, I didn't even tell you the best part yet. That person, I was like, I don't remember reading that person's name even in the PPM. So they were referring that somebody other than the management of the company had complete and utter control over the company. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't a mistake. So you were going, with that? And it wasn't a mistake? I don't know what it was, but I just told the person, because this was an in situation where I was reviewing it for an investor, and I just told the investor, they didn't even take the time to read their own documents. Is this somebody you really want to invest with? Episode 116, Unraveling Ego and Tapping into Intuition with Adapia Dorico. The thing that's important about that is that the ego is driven by fear. You know, mostly it's driven by yeah. fear. Ultimately, you know, it wants people to, it wants you to think, that it's driving you because you're just an ultra performer or you're elite or all these things, but it's really out of fear. And really when you get comfortable with that, it's interesting to say, well, what, what is that fear? What is that? You know, is it fear that I'm not worthy or people won't accept me or love me or whatever? And it's really interesting when you get down to it and you think about ego, like the three letters in the word ego, it's edging God out. Right. And so whether you're religious or not, whether you're spiritual, religious, you know, it's about, you know, you're edging out your true inner being like the source of who you are. And, you know, I think this is really important for us to discuss, you know, with, you know, a crowd of people who listen, who are investors or, you know, real estate investors or entrepreneurs or leaders, because, you know, sometimes we try to cover up, we just stack things on top of what we aren't recognizing as wounds, right? We're not recognizing as something that we're going within. So maybe we could serve the listeners just a bit further 
give us a look into the process that you was it just hey I'm asking the question like what is this what is what am I trying to you know be what am I fearful of or tell us Mm. a little bit more yeah so this is the realm of what's called shadow work um it's called shadow work and it it's, it's multi-pronged um, because like our ability to get in touch with our deeper, higher self, it, it's, it's myriad. It's like different for, you know, everybody has it in, in different ways. Um, we're definitely wanting to meditate. You know, we're definitely wanting to be in deep contemplation. Um, one of the most powerful practices for me was writing, always has been writing and um, really powerful was autobiographical writing. And so like reliving, um, I call it compassionate re-experiencing. So like reliving a defining moment and, but seeing it with a different lens, you have the, the lens of having, you know, times gone by, but you're looking at yourself as who you were at the time objectively. And what you start to see, especially if you like, if you're like me that like, didn't want to go back and even think about. I don't ever want to think about the head in the sand. I don't ever want to look at it again. When you actually look at it, you realize like, oh, you know, I was trying my best. Like, oh, I, you know, my intention wasn't bad. My intention was actually really good. I have good intentions. And what you start, what starts to happen and like you're writing it out and like you're telling the story and you're even just like reliving it in your mind or looking at pictures or emails or what have you. And some of the things like I had to relook at, like, like very like obviously like especially like this like this fraud loss for example like I had to talk to the DA and I had to like talk to like the FBI and I had to like talk to all kinds of people and like seven years later I had to do it all again and so it just brought up so much emotion and um but the only way to heal it is to actually look at it that's the only way is to actually look at it and so that means re-looking at a memory then that's what you do and you see it and you see yourself objectively, like what was my motivation? What was my intention? What was I trying to get? Who was I at that time? What did I know? Cause you know, in our, in our everyday life and every moment, like when I was 23, I knew exactly what I was doing. When I was like, you know, 40, I knew exactly what I was doing, but, but, but then, but then like time has a way of giving you perspective that you get to see and understand yourself a little bit more. So I use this. It's like, it's interesting. You call it like time travel because you can actually travel back in time through your memory and through autobiographical writing. And you can actually change your life because you can change basically the emotional tone you've given something that happened to yourself. And, and like that completely changes how you feel about yourself in the present moment too. Um, and you're rewriting your story because you're, we're the hero of our own lives, right? Like I, and I get to decide what my story is about. You get to decide what your story is about and you get to decide what anything that's happened to you means. Like I get to assign meaning right? Meaning making that's, that's up to me. Like, you know, it, it, it's interesting because I talk a lot about authority in, in like my leadership, in my leadership work and um, this idea of authority that, you know, in, in our society is very much like external authority, like somebody else. 
but the root word of authority is author. And like, that is right. Like that is like, I'm the author and we're always the author of our own lives. And, um, there's a lot of power there. If we, if we recognize that just because something happened, doesn't mean it happened that one way. And in fact, because of the way our memory works and deteriorates and it's so fallible and like our brain is so easily tricked. There's so much about it. That is that, that there's a lot of science around memory that what you remember isn't actually what happened. Oh my goodness. What just <laughs> happened? Arapia, are you kidding me right now? This is massively gold, gold nuggets of wisdom right here. Episode 53. Enjoying the gift of life through syndication and independent thought with Ben Kogan. I could take this opportunity to share about the the gift, the rules about the gift of life. That'd be great. And I just want to make a mention on sleep real quick while you do that. I've got this aura ring here. I've just got this recently. I highly recommend this if anybody is looking to kind of you know track their sleep and try to figure out how much deep sleep you're getting, how much. REM sleep and NREM and all this stuff. I just read this book, Why We Sleep by this scientist and blew my mind. Yeah. I thought like, oh, six hours is fine or five hours is fine, but it's not. I mean, you really need to give yourself a sleep opportunity of seven to nine hours and you need to really be doing that on a consistent basis. And you can't pay that debt either. So I think that's really interesting. So I really appreciate you bringing that up, but dive sure. into educate. So Elevate Nation, get some sleep. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. All right. So uh, we talked about this a little bit before we got on air here. I'm going to share with you something that I, that I carry in my wallet every single day. And it's titled The Rules, How to Enjoy the Gift of Life. And it's 10 very short little uh, rules that I'm about to read to you that um, I think about on a very, very regular basis. I picked this up from a, a rabbi in Israel, as a matter of fact, uh, when I was there about a year and a half, two years ago. And I think these apply to everybody. So here, you ready for it? I'm ready. Here it goes. All right. Number one, think appreciatively and gratefully. Number two, speak and act joyfully and kindly. Number three, always find the benefit and be patient. Number four, strive for meaningful goals. Number five, see, hear, and feel yourself being the way you wish to be, joyfully self-confident and courageous. Number six, focus on solutions. Number seven, let challenges upgrade your character. Number eight, consistently access positive states as you recall your life's greatest highlights. Number nine, smile to all mirrors and to people who would appreciate it. I love that one. That's awesome. And number 10, ask yourself, what is the wisest thing to say and do right now? Keep upgrading, keep elevating. Thank you for listening to Elevate. If you enjoy this episode, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and pay it forward by sharing with a friend. Most importantly, take this opportunity to elevate your results by taking immediate action on what you learned. For more, visit elevatepod.com.